Let's turn in our Bibles uh, to the book of 1 John chapter 3. Uh, if you have a hard time finding the book of John, 1 John like I always do, it's, it's one of the very last books in the Bible. So just flip to the back and then start making your way forward and you will eventually run into it. If you don't have a Bible, there are plenty of Bibles on the back table next to the offering box and we'd love to give one to you if you don't own a copy. Uh, today marks uh, week three of our four-week series in this book, a series we've entitled That You May Know. And if you are just now joining us, uh, it'll be helpful to know that this book, the book of 1 John, uh, was originally a letter written by a man named John, if you hadn't already guessed that, written by a man named John to a group of first century Christians who were living in and around, most likely, the, the city of Ephesus, which is in modern day Turkey. And the Christians to whom uh, John is writing this letter, which is the book of First John, these Christians were struggling. They were struggling to know whether or not they were actually Christians. Uh, they were being led astray by false teachers that had wormed their way into the church. And these false teachers were making all sorts of new claims and assertions. They were challenging the fact that Jesus was God, saying that he in fact wasn't, that his death on the cross wasn't necessary for sin. It's basic Gnostic teaching. Um, and it had these Christians in these churches in Ephesus confused. And John recognized these Christians, they, they needed to be assured they needed certainty. They needed to know that they had truly been forgiven of their sins, that they had truly been saved, that they truly had possessed and do possess eternal life. And so John wrote them this letter. That's the reason why the book of 1 John was written. He, in this letter, he shared with them four marks, if you will, four signs of a true Christian. And two weeks ago, we looked at mark number one, sign number one, evidence number one, belief in Jesus. And we asked the question, do you believe Jesus? Remember, if you were here, you know, we asked, do you believe that Jesus is God? Do you believe that he became man and he lived a sinless life and he died on a cross to forgive sinners and rose again three days later? And the reason we ask if you believe this or not, it is the absolute bedrock of Christianity. The Bible makes clear in no uncertain terms that Jesus is our only hope for forgiveness and eternal life. He is the way, the truth, the life. And so that's why we asked the first week of this series, do you believe Jesus? If you don't believe Jesus and what he says about himself, what the Bible says about him, then, then, then you don't have a claim to be assured of salvation because if you don't believe Jesus, you don't have salvation. So there's a weightiness to, the, to this. In Mark number two, or sign number two of a true Christian, we looked last week and we asked this question, do you obey God? Okay, so you believe Jesus. Well, do you obey God? Do you strive to live your life according to God's commands in scripture? Do you, do you strive to walk like Jesus. Now hear me, I said this last week, but if you weren't here last week, you need to hear this. Obedience does not earn our salvation. Jesus earned our salvation. 
in his perfect life and his obedient death and resurrection. But obedience certainly serves as a key evidence that we have truly believed Jesus. Because what we believe ultimately dictates how we behave. Amen. In our passage this morning, John's going to kind of vamp on that concept of obedience. He's going to take the concept a little bit deeper as we look at Mark 3 or sign number 3. I don't want to say Mark 3 and have everybody flipping in their Bibles to Mark chapter 3. Sign or evidence number 3 of a true Christian. Here's the question. Do you hate sin? Do you hate sin? If you would, look at 1 John chapter 3. I'm going to start reading in verse 4. This is our passage this morning. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Tough passage, Lord. Uh, Humbling passage, a sobering passage, and it ought to be. Um, Holy Spirit, would would you now submit us to this word? Would you teach us this word? And I don't mean through all of my words, but God, letting deep groan to deep, Holy Spirit, would you speak to our hearts this morning and, and, and convict us, God, where we need convicted. Encourage us, God, where we need encouraged. Bolster us, strengthen us, in the areas so needed. Lord, what our ultimate desire is here, and we're, we're kidding ourselves if we gather every Sunday without this being our desire. Here's our desire. We want to look like and love Jesus. And so let that, let that be our heart cry, and Lord, use this word to conform us into the likeness of Jesus, and Lord, to fill our hearts with love for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Sin is, uh, is, is not something that many people uh, enjoy talking about. It's uh, a relatively unpleasant topic. Um, 
the last uh, United States president to use the word sin in his proclamation of the National Day of Prayer, the last U.S. president to use the word sin was Dwight Eisenhower. And Eisenhower only used the word sin in his National Day of Prayer proclamation because he was quoting Abraham Lincoln. I mean, so think about that. Sin, uh, yeah, understood, is not a topic many of us like to talk about, but on the National Day of Prayer and its proclamation, you'd think we would be okay talking about it just that, no, not even then, not even then. The next time that you are in your car, you know, turn on Christian radio, or if you have Spotify or Pandora, open that up and listen to the current, you know, top worship songs that are being sung in and around churches today. More than likely, you will not hear uh, words like this. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. You will not hear words like that on modern Christian radio. Modern Christian even worship music gives very little, if any, attention to the issue of sin. I am so thankful that uh, underneath of Scott Long's leadership here in this church, that is not the case here. I mean, if anything, I am very aware of my wretchedness while we are singing, praise God, praise God, praise God for that. We're going to see why praise God for that. The common vernacular in a lot of songs and sermons these days is being alarmingly softened. Words like sin and iniquity and transgression are now being replaced. Instead of sins, it's, well, my regrets. Instead of iniquity, it's my, it, it was a mistake. Instead of transgression, it's, I, I failed. I faltered a bit. Now, I understand, hear, hear me out. I'm, I'm not trying to be an old church curmudgeon up here. I am relatively young still. So it, I, my, my, my heart, I understand wanting to, to use a vernacular that is somewhat approachable for those outside the church. I understand that, but make, we need to make no mistake this morning. The disappearance of sin from many of our songs and sermons is wreaking havoc on those inside the church. A friend, a friend of mine once invited a female leader in the church to come and speak at a women's uh, small group meeting on the topic of sin. And this leader was invited to come and to share her experience with sin, some of her past victories and some of her current battles. Now, I understand that that's a vulnerable invitation. That's a vulnerable spot to be in. And it would have been completely understandable if this woman had declined for that reason. But the reason she declined wasn't because she was uncomfortable about talking about her sin in her life. It's because according to her, as far as she could tell, she didn't have any sin 
in her life to talk about. This is in an evangelical church. This is an issue. And I'm really glad to hear the, the wow, the, the, the groan, the response in that. This is an issue. And I think if we were to take a poll of all the professing Christians in America, I, we might be shocked at the pervasiveness of this thinking. It could be that the most relevant question that we could be asking the modern church today isn't even, do you hate sin? It's, do you know that you're a sinner? Do you even know what sin is? It's, it's crazy that those questions might be more applicable than do you hate sin? Of course, I'm speaking to believers in this room, at least that is my presupposition, that we are believers in this room. So my question to you this morning, title of my sermon, do you hate sin? And we're gonna cover those other questions as well. But, but here's John's logic in this part of 1 John. Without a growing hatred towards sin, church, we will not grow in obedience to God. And if we're not growing in obedience to God, well, then we really can't claim to believe and trust Jesus, which means that we ought not be assured of any forgiveness and salvation. Do we see the linear pathway of this thinking? Do we see John's logic? Now, I promise there's good news this morning. There's always good news because Jesus is alive and he's on his throne. But we need to be challenged today, don't we? So let's allow this word to do just that. Do you hate sin? This morning, we're gonna look at what sin is, point number one. Number two, we're gonna look at why we should hate it. And number three, at the very end, I'm gonna offer some practical thoughts on how we should go about hating it, okay? So that's where we'll be for the rest of our time. Let's look at number one. What sin is? And John doesn't keep us guessing for long. It's, verse, look, verse four. Sin is lawlessness. Whoever makes a practice of this, of sin, also practices lawlessness. There's a lot of weight to that word lawlessness that we need to understand. Lawlessness is rebellion against God's authority but there's a second part to lawlessness. It's not just a rebellion to God's sovereign authority. It is a hatred toward his law and toward his person. John doesn't say that, you know, some sins are lawlessness, the ones that we like to think of the most, you know, murder, bank robbery, drug addiction. Yeah, we understand those things are lawless deeds. He doesn't actually make any caveats here. He said sin is lawlessness. He says, oh, it's all sin. I mean, let's talk about some of the sins that, that, that often fly under our own radar and apply it to that definition, gossip. Gossip, rebellion against God's sovereign authority and hatred toward his law and his person. Dishonesty, laziness, overworking, workaholism. These things that often 
might even be celebrated as virtues in our country in this time. We have to apply this definition of lawlessness too because John makes no exceptions. Sin is lawlessness. Any time that we think or speak or act in a way that God forbids is lawlessness. Any time we don't think and we don't speak and we don't act in the way that God requires in his word, it is lawlessness. It is rebellion against God and hatred toward him. Why is that? Because that sounds intense. It is. Why is this? If we were to take a survey of the entire Bible and just go from very beginning, Genesis 1-1, and work all the way through, we would quickly see it's because God created us. We belong to him. We are accountable to him is the reason why any sort of sin or disobedience or varying from what Jesus commands can be considered rebellion against his sovereign authority. You guys, our lives are not our own. I don't care how much we've listened to John Bon Jovi. It's my life, right? No, no, Bon Jovi, it's not. It's not. Your life and my life is not our own to live however we please. And for every person who has not been born of God, that is, regenerated, spiritually reborn with you know, being given a new heart and a new mind, uh, this is a really, really hard concept to chew on, this idea of God's authority over us, that we, excuse me, we are not our own. For every person not born of God with God's seed, in them, being told that we are not the masters and commanders of our lives does not make us happy. And it's because sin is more than just an act. It is a condition of the heart. To put it in insurance terms, sin is a pre-existing condition in all of us that we, each of us, have inherited. Sin is more than just the practice of our hands. It is the position of our hearts. And so you need to understand, we all need to understand, no matter where we are, one of the things that I think a lot of modern evangelicals, such as the woman I was sharing, one of the things I think we're missing is that, you guys, we don't come into this world like little angels who happen to make a mistake every once and a while, in a while. The Bible teaches that when the first human beings, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden, that there was a shift in the genetic structure of creation. What God had made whole, what he had created good, became fractured. What he had made pure became marred. What he had made orderly became disorderly. And the Bible goes on. Again, if we were to continue reading all the way through, the Bible teaches that you and I and every human being who have been born after Adam and Eve, well, we have been born into this disorder. We've been born into the fracture. In other words, rebellion 
is our inherited nature. We are sinners by nature, but we are also sinners by choice. I mean, when it comes to sin, I'll just share from my own life, I am not being held against my will. My flesh loves sin. I love living as if the world revolves around me. If we're honest, we all, we all do. Even though we secretly know better, as we read Romans 1, every, every one of us has been given an internal witness, this consciousness, consciousness that, that knows that we are accountable to a creator God, but, but we love our sin because it's in our nature to love sin. And so in an effort to fight off the guilt of our self-worship and our sin, I mean, we simply repackage it. I'm not greedy. I'm just practicing fiscal responsibility. I'm not vain. I'm just trying to be healthy. I'm not a gossip. I just want everyone to be informed. I'm not a pervert. I just admire the human body. I'm not a workaholic. I'm just ambitious. I'm not an idolater. I'm just really into sports. And my family and I are willing to sacrifice every bit of Christian community to go and be involved in every traveling team in the world. I'm not an idolater though, we just like sports. Going back to the illustration of the woman that I shared with who was invited to come, if I'm honest, more often than not, I echo her sentiment. I don't, I don't have any sin in my life to talk about because I've repackaged all of my sins and excused myself. First John chapter one, verse eight. And those who claim to not have any sin, they're liars. We've deceived ourselves. And we're deceiving others. So the truth of the matter, the simplicity, if I could leave you with just the, the most absolute simple definition of sin I possibly can is if God himself is not taking center stage of your life, well then someone or something else is and that is a violation of the first and second commandments. Sin is any thought, any motive, any word, any action that does not conform to the perfect will of God. How intense is that definition? I dare not ever say or ever think in my mind that I'm without sin. I'm plagued with it. Sin is not just an act of rebellion against God, it's an act of hatred toward God. This is why John writes in verses eight and 10 of chapter three, if you're still there, that those who embrace the practice of sin, look at this, they're actually in partnership with Satan. Those who embrace the practice of sin in allegiance with Satan. Satan has been hating God since the beginning when he lured Adam and Eve into his grand conspiracy. 
So whoever makes a practice of sinning, John is writing, is aligning themselves with God's enemy. We got to know that the, the Gnostic false teachers that were coming into these churches in Ephesus, they weren't really making a big deal of sin. They were kind of just living and let live, uh, claiming some higher spirituality through knowledge and asceticism. Um, John is bold-faced opposing them right now. Dudes, if you're practicing sin, if you're just headlong in it without much of a care, you're actually aligning yourselves with God's nemesis. Whoever makes a practice, men, of lust, whoever makes a practice of this, my goodness, how many of us need to examine that? I tell you, one of the things that God used to spare me from a life enslaved to pornography is the thought that I was in allegiance with the devil himself partaking in that. That demonic activity was all around me in that. That was a major deterrent for me, and it might be for you. Whoever makes a practice of dishonesty, we'll call it what it is, lying, you know, you're not going to hear a ton of sermons on lying. Whoever makes a practice of it, whoever makes a practice of saying things about others behind their back, do you practice this? Look at your life, examine. Holy Spirit, help us to see. Whoever makes a practice of indulging in too much drink or too much food. Whoever makes, this one, this one killed me. Whoever makes a practice of not sharing the gospel is in rebellion against God. If you're a believer and you've hidden it under a bush, like I so often have and do, it's not even just rebellion against God, it's hatred toward him and his person. This is what sin is. And I hope that number two, why we should hate it, starts to become a little bit evident because it is an affront. I have, I have three reasons to share this morning as to why we should hate sin because it is an affront to our wonderful and loving and holy creator, God. When my wife, Lindsay, uh, who's here with me this morning, I'm so excited my family's here with me. When my, when my wife, Lindsay, and I were in college, we took a road trip with a group of friends for spring break, and we stopped uh, on our way uh, down you know, to Florida. Uh, we, we stopped for gas in the middle of nowhere in the state of Georgia. And as we pulled in, I noticed several shady dudes uh, staring at us through the window of the gas station, several of them, their arms, arms were crossed and their faces were really stern and concerned. And I could not, while I'm pumping gas, I could not figure out what the deal was. But then I looked at my friend, AJ, who is black, and I saw the look on his face and all of the dots started to connect. And I knew we needed to get out of there as soon as possible. Now, with that illustration in mind, let me ask you, what kind of a friend would I be if I did not oppose those who were prepared to oppose my friend? 
And so it is with my sin and with my God to not hate my sin is by all accounts hateful toward God. I think King David understood this quite well. If you read through the Psalms, he's constantly talking about his hatred for that which God opposes. And David is is a great model to follow in this because while he has a really good perspective of hating sin in general, hating the racism that I experienced with my friend that day, hating the world's sin, David's good at this. He points though the full force of his hatred back to his own sin in particular. Brothers and sisters, one of the questions that would emerge from this passage this morning is do you hate the sin in your life that stands in opposition to God? I mean, I do a really good job of hating other people's sins. But my own, man, I'm prone to repackage and excuse away But I'm convinced that the humility of Christ does not and cannot exist. In fact, discipling relationships can't even exist in a place where I am hating others' sins more than my own. And in this process, this week of praying through and, and, and trying to ask the Lord what it looks like to really hate my own sin, I have come back to just simply starting with this, considering the most wonderful goodness and kindness of my God. Consider verse five and the second half of verse eight in our passage. Look, we see the gospel in microcosm that he, that is Jesus who is without sin, he appeared. He came to earth to not only destroy the works of the devil that we see in the second half of verse eight, but in verse five, he came to take away sin. Right there, is the good news that we rally around every weekend. The the starting line for my hatred of sin is considering this, that my goodness, while I was running headlong in my sin toward an eternal death of separation with God, which is the result of sin, the wages of sin, while I was running headlong in my own sin, Christ, the sinless, came down from glory and took my sin and died on the cross to exonerate that sin. If there were any place that we could start to begin to kind of kickstart a hatred for our own sin, it's looking upon the kindness and the mercy of God as displayed for sinners on the cross. It's looking at that. It's the, I mean, scripture says it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. 
He had every right to let us dwindle and die in this position of rebellion that we have chosen for ourselves, but because he is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, he came to make us alive with Christ. By grace, we have been saved through faith. This isn't of our doing, nor of our own asking. It is the gift of God. Hallelujah. Starting there. Because of Jesus, a change of position has been made possible. Yes, we have inherited the sin nature of Adam and Eve, but a second Adam has been sent. And we now have the, op the opportunity to come to him and have our positions realigned. We should hate the sin that is an affront to such a wonderful God as this. Number two, these last two points under my last point. Um, excuse me, under my second point. I'm, I'm lost in my own outline. That means that I'm, I'm talking too much. Uh, the second reason why we should hate sin is because it hurts others. We can all think of moments when we've been hurt by someone else's sin. And some of us in this room, man, I mean no detraction, you have been sinned against grievously. And the Lord sees that and the Lord cares about that and his justice will be seen in that place. But I'm talking about hating sin of our own because it hurts others. After Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the garden, what was almost the very next thing they did? They were blaming each, they threw each other under the bus. Cain then rebelled against God by killing Abel. Abraham rebelled by offering up Sarah. Jacob's favoritism pitted all of his 12 sons against each other. David forced a woman to sleep with him and then killed her husband. If you have ever hurt someone else, it is because of sin. And we should hate this sin that so grieves and affects others. I, I need to shorten some things here. I'm gonna go to the third reason why we should hate sin is because it robs us of true life. Let me ask a rhetorical question. You don't need to show your hands. I mean, has any of us ever been actually fulfilled by alcohol? Has any one of us ever been truly fulfilled by porn or greed, penny-pinching, by backbiting and gossip? No, it's a rhetorical question. No one has ever been fulfilled by sin because sin never, ever lives up to the hype. It never does what it promises to do. Satan promised Adam and Eve that eating the fruit would give them life, but what did it give them? It gave them death. And for those of us who have walked in patterns of sin and practiced sin like John is warning against, we know the bottomless pit that sin is. It is insatiable. It will never satisfy. These things were never designed to satisfy. It will only enslave us. Sin is bondage. There is so much to be said about sin. 
we're scratching the surface. Let me fast forward here. How should we go about hating it? How should we go about hating our sin? Let's say you're here, you see the practices and the patterns of your life. You're filled right now with what I would call a righteous shame. There is a righteous shame. There is a righteous guilt that leads to life. Shame and guilt devoid of Christ leads to death. But those of you who are here, who are examining and thinking of your life right now, and you're, you're looking, man, I don't know that I truly hate sin like I ought. Here are some ideas as to how we should go about hating it. When my wife and I lived in Columbus, um, we lived in an area that had a bed bug outbreak and I was doing ministry downtown and I must have brought back a bed bug with me and then it, they spread in our house and it, it, was a, it was a nightmare. Talk about unwelcome intruders. You should have seen the way my wife and I handled ourselves for those two weeks. I mean, we were stopping at nothing to eradicate those pests. And I think about that in a bit, uh, in, in a way, as a metaphor. As a metaphor for what I don't do with my sin. I as a confession to you, I barely pray that the Lord would reveal my sin to me. I barely echo the sentiment of David in Psalm 139, reveal any grievous way in me, Lord, and lead me in the way everlasting. I barely do that. And because of that, I could say, I, I might barely hate my sin. I hate the effects of my sin. I hate it when my sin comes back to bite me. I hate it when it hurts someone else and then they're upset with me. But do I really hate it like, like it's vermin coming into my house and I want to eradicate it? No, I don't hate it that much. And so the first place that I would encourage you this morning, if you can echo anything that I'm sharing it's that we would be men and women who ask God, show us our sin issues and then give us the absolute fury of heaven to fight that sin like we are fighting an unwelcome intruder in our life. Jesus does not mince words. If your hand causes you to sin, what does he say? Cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, what does he say? Gouge it out. Sometimes I wonder if Jesus wasn't kidding. I mean, I can't say that I have really gone to much extreme length to eradicate sin from my life. And I'm thinking through, and maybe you can relate with me on this, I'm thinking about the patterns of thought that arise in me when I'm spending hours on my phone, the patterns of thought that arise in me when I'm watching Netflix series that I, I, probably, I probably shouldn't be watching. I think about, I think about those things and I, I, I start to hear Jesus say, if your hand is causing you to sin, cut it off. Is it not worth walking into heaven without your left hand, is it not worth that? 
Because the alternative is spending eternity in hell and separation from God. The thing that I have asked the Lord this week to enable us to do as a church is that we would get super serious that the believers in this room, that a fire would be kindled in us because of this passage this morning. That those of us with the seed of God, the implanted Holy Spirit in our hearts, that a fire would be kindled and that we would say, wow, we would look at our life, we would, we would see patterns and we would go, oh no, I've gotten complacent, I've gotten comfortable, it's time to go to war. And that we would get the people in our community group around us, we would rally our brothers and our sisters. I would go to a brother and I would say, dude, my life is hanging on this. Help me to see my sin. Call me out when you see evidence of it in my life and help me to put it to death in my life. Help me to do that. Are we a body willing to do that with one another? Are we a body willing to ask that God create a hatred for sin in us, that we would walk in the holiness and purity of Jesus? I want to be, I want to be that for you and I want you to be that for me. If you are in this room and you are struggling with all of this in your mind, I wanna leave you with this, be encouraged. It is a good sign that there is a struggle going on right now as you look at your life and you wonder if this third mark of a true Christian is really true in you. If you are stirring on this, if there's a concern, that's a great place. If there were no concern and you were sitting here indifferent, then I would be concerned, okay? True Christians, true Christians are going to continue to sin but we will not be fulfilled by our sin. And we will have this grievous pit in us that knows we are settling for far less than the creator desires to give to us. And so as John writes in this passage, let us be a community of believers who truly, truly hate our sin. Let's pray. Father, uh, this, this message was a hard one for me and primarily because I am just so, so convicted by it, by this passage. I thank you for that. Lord, I pray that you would uh, convict each and every one of us with a righteous and holy and uplifting conviction that today we would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it is not our hatred for sin that saves us, our trust in Christ who took our sin to death and his resurrection, our trust in that good news is what saves us. And as a result, looking upon your loving kindness in the face of Christ, we will want to hate our sin. I pray that we get these things in the right order this morning. Help us, Lord, to hate our sin to the degree that we are willing to put it to death. In Jesus' name, amen.